Thank you for downloading the Two Cities Church podcast, where we are pushing back darkness by spreading the good news of King Jesus. And now, here is this week's message from Pastor Jeff Struker. Thank you. Good morning, or we say shalom. Shalom. Have you ever heard of a Messianic Jew? Raise your hand. All right, good. For the rest of you, I'm going to just give you a little bit of a heads up. Uh, what a time to be Jewish in the world, right? Um, we, we, we've been through uh, quite a bit as a people, and for my entire life, this has been something that I've, I've had to wrestle with, and people have had to wrestle with me. And so uh, my dad and I, a couple years ago, we, we made our exodus out of California, and we made it not quite the land of milk and honey, but horses and bourbon. We now live in Lexington, Kentucky. And uh, we started a ministry there called The Jewish Road. And this is probably the best explanation that we can give of who is it that, how is it that it could, I could be Jewish and believe in Jesus. And, and really this idea is that we, we say that it's like a two-act play, that every Jew in the world, they bought tickets to this two-act play, um, and they went to the first act, and at intermission, they got up, grabbed a drink, went home, and never even saw the second act. Meanwhile, every Christian in the world bought tickets to that same two-act play. They got there late, and they passed the Jews in the lobby, and then saw the second act, and the real tragedy of the whole thing is that neither group has really seen or heard the whole story. And so really our message is, and my message to you today, is that we want to be able to help Christians make sense of the roots of your faith. You've been grafted into this tree, and there are tremendous roots, and we want to connect what we say is the first act with the second act, but we also want to help the Jewish people make sense of their Jewish Messiah because they are missing. I'm part of the 1% of all the Jews in the world, and there's not many of us. um, 1% of us believe that Jesus was and is the promised Messiah. And never has there been a better story to illustrate and to connect Act 1, the Old Testament, and Act 2, the New Testament, than the story that we're looking at right now today. So um, what I want to do is this message is called the binding of faith. And I don't know if you know this, but uh, Genesis 22 is read uh, every year in the synagogues on the second day of Rosh Hashanah, also known as the Feast of trumpets. And the Jewish people, they don't say, let's read from Genesis 22. They say, we are going to read the Akedah. And the Akedah is this Hebrew word that means the binding. And it's the binding of Isaac, that Isaac was bound. And that's what this story is going to get into. But I want us to see that the through line through this entire story, and really through the Jewish people, for the Jewish people, is that there is a binding of faith. Um, And we're going to walk through this story, and I want to be able to give you some uh, explanation as we go through. So um, we're in Genesis chapter 22, and we're going to go into this. And as you already know, and I've been tracking along and uh, love the story of Two Cities and how you work and you're mission-driven and want to be able to get out there pushing back darkness and really telling the world about Jesus, King Jesus who's bringing light into the world. And this is the season that we get to celebrate Jesus as the light of the world. Um, All the way back in Genesis chapter 12, that was 
10 chapters ago, um, God makes a covenant with the Jewish people through Abraham. It's an everlasting covenant, and it's for this covenant is for the land, the seed, and the blessing. And ever since God said to Abraham, I choose you, Satan looked at the Jewish people and said, well, then I choose you too. And all throughout Jewish history, what we see is this battle, this struggle between good and evil, between the covenant of God, who he, he's determined to stay faithful to, and the enemy of God who is trying to destroy. And I want to walk you through what that looks like every step of the way. So here we go. Genesis 22, it says, after these things, God tested Abraham, and he said to him, Abraham, and he said, Hineni, here am I. And he says, take your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains, which I will tell you. Now, I want you to hear this. He says, take your son, your only son, the one whom you love. In fact, uh, there's, there's something biblically that we have to look at. It's called the law of firsts. Anytime you see something, a word in scripture, you want to go back and say, when was the first time that that word was mentioned? In this one passage in Genesis 22, we see that the word love, ahava, is mentioned for the very first time. The word love. Take your son, the one whom you love, your only son, the one who you love, and I want you to take him and you're going to sacrifice him as an offering to me. And this is not a temptation by God. This is a testing. And testing always reveals and purifies our trust or our faith. And so what God is doing through Abraham right now is he is testing the faith of Abraham. He's saying, Abraham, you've said that you love me. We know that you love your son, your only son, and now I want you to do something that is going to produce and test your faith. Um, now, God is not about child sacrifice. We see lots of passages in Scripture in Deuteronomy that this is not what God is asking him ultimately to do. But th this is a test of uh, and a picture of what that faith is going to look like. Now, what's at stake here is that God is asking Abraham to take his child, his child of promise, the one who would be continuing on to bring about this covenant promise. There is no other. Take your son, your only son. We know that this covenant promise is made through Isaac. And now God is, is putting this covenant at risk. And Abraham is supposed to be obedient. This is the fulfillment of the promise. And it's being tested in this moment. So I want you to see this. Abraham's very first response to God, God says, Abraham, and Abraham says, here am I. He says, Hineni. Now this, this phrase, it shows up eight times in the Old Testament. And three of those times, it shows up right here in this passage. Abraham says, here am I, three times. And the first one is right here. And what what Hanani really is saying is, I stand at the ready, I am present. Even this idea of here am I is, is an act of faith. I don't know what you are calling me into, but whatever you're calling me into, by faith I am ready to move forward in whatever it is that you're asking. 
Now, we have three teenagers, and sometimes when we call them, we say, hey, Noah, we don't get the same, here am I, father, here am I, mother. It's what, what? Or most of the time they have headphones on and they don't hear us at all. And so now we have to make the trek upstairs and drag them down. But this is a different kind of response. This response is one that is saying, here am I. God, what is it that you want of me? We see this show up. Moses, Moses says this uh, when God is calling to him from the bush. Samuel, out of his sleep, he's being called by God and he says, Hineni, here am I, and even Isaiah. But here's the great thing, the amazing thing about this word Hineni, that three times God actually responds to us. In Isaiah, he says, here am I. He says, then you will call and the Lord will answer. You will cry for help and God himself will say, here am I. I am ready to meet you in that moment. And so God is making a critical request. He says, your son, your only son, Isaac. And this should immediately connect us to act two, where we have this passage in John three sixteen held up at every football game. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son, the son that he loved. And now we're starting to see already this connection between Isaac and Jesus. And it will become more apparent as we go through this. But take your son, your only son, whom you love, and I want you to sacrifice him. And so this is the critical, the critical request. But Abraham's test and the brink of the covenant fulfillment, this is all at risk at this point. And so now as we keep going, what does it say in verse 3? We have Abraham and his assurance. And it says this. So Abraham slept in avoiding that entire fiasco that was about to happen. Is that what it says in verse three on yours? No, it doesn't say that in mine either. It says that he rose early in the morning and even that shows his obedience, right? Early in the morning, he saddled his donkey, took two of his young men with him and his son, Isaac. And so we have his obedience. This is Abraham, his assurance that he is moving forward. And it says, he cut the wood for the burnt offering and he arose and he went to the place which God had told him. And so he's going and it says this on ver in verse four, on the third day, Abraham lifted up his eyes. This phrase, lift up his eyes. All, every time you read the, that phrase in the Bible, so-and-so lifted up their eyes, you know something significant is about to hit on the horizon. He lifted up his eyes and he saw the place from afar. Now, don't miss this. There's something that's significant in scripture. It says on the third day, uh, there is the, a third day significance that we see, and we see it throughout scripture. It's plainly stated in the New Testament. We know that, that Jesus was crucified and on the third day he rose again. But when we see this language of third day, it should remind us that there's something redemptive that's gonna happen on that third day. There's something revelatory and there's something resurrection related. Third day is important. We see it not only in this passage, and you'll see it again as we go through this passage, um, but we also see it on Mount Sinai. On Mount Sinai, it says this in Exodus chapter 19, God says to Moses, go to the people and consecrate them today and tomorrow and let them wash their garments and be ready for the third day. For on the third day, the Lord will come down on Mount Sinai 
in the sight of the people. Sinai is huge. God is doing something new and revelatory for the Jewish people on Mount Sinai. But not only that, the regathering of God's people out of Babylon back into the land. Listen to this. Hosea 6, 2, it says, Come, let us return to the Lord, for he has torn us, that he may heal us. He has struck us down, and he will bind us up. After two days, he will revive us, and on the third day, he will raise us up, that we may live before him. Fourth example is we have Jonah, and Jonah is said to have been in the belly of the fish for three days and three nights, and after that, he is resurrected. He has life, and he comes out of there. So this third day's significance, when it says that he came on the third day, he lifted his eyes up, he sees the place from afar, and he says to his young men in verse 5, stay here with the donkey. I and the boy will go over there and worship and come again to you. I imagine as Abraham lifts up his eyes and off in the distance, he sees Moriah. He knows what it is that he's been called to do. He says, son, let's, let's walk a little slower. Um, son, this is not going to be an easy trek. And Isaac at this point doesn't fully know what's going on, but Abraham turns to his men and he says, I and the boy are going to go worship. And by the way, this is the first time, this is the first time that the word worship is, is brought up in the Bible. So we're going to go up and we're going to worship. But he also says this. He says, I and the boy are going to go worship and we're going to come back to you. We are going to come back to you. So we see the faith of Abraham. In fact, Abraham, he makes it into the hall of faith in Hebrews 11. Have you seen Hebrews 11? And, and Abraham, we get a picture of his faith revealed to us in the second act in Hebrews 11. And this is what it says. Hebrews 11, 17 and 19 says, By faith, by faith, Abraham, when he was tested, he offered up Isaac. And who he had received the promise was in the act of offering up his only son, of whom it was said, through Isaac shall your offspring be named. He considered that God was even able to raise him up from the dead, from which, figuratively speaking, he did receive him back. Abraham didn't know the full plan of what God was asking him to do. The only thing he knew was he said, why don't you take your son and go up? But even in the midst of that, he said that even if I have to take him, that I know that God is going to raise him up again. And because of that, it was counted to him faith. And that faith brought him salvation. Abraham had assurance and he knew that God was going to raise him up. So that's from Abraham's perspective. But what is going on with Isaac. Isaac is just, all right, let's go, dad. Now, there's a little bit of variation among the theologians of what's actually going on here as far as Isaac's age. How old is he? Is he a toddler? I think most people, and the word in the Hebrew, it says that he was a lad. He might have been somewhere in his teens, okay? 
What's going on for Isaac in this moment? This is not the first time that they've done worship. It's not the first time that they've gone to sacrifice. But it says this, and this is in verse 6. Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering, and he laid it on Isaac, his son. And he took his hand, in his hand, the fire and the knife. And so both of them went together. And Isaac said to his father, Abraham, My father... And Abraham says, Hineni, here I am, my son. What is it that you're asking? I'm here. I'm present. I'm ready. And Isaac's starting to put two and two together at this point. Dad, um, I see fire. I see the wood. Normally, when we do this, we have a lamb. Where's the offering? And Abraham said, God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering, my son. So they both went together. I don't think at this point, Isaac is worried. I don't. I think he's just putting two, to, two, two and two together. And it's, it's you know, I, I have a dad who's a little bit older and he forgets things and like, dad, do you have your keys? We're about to go on a ride. Let's make sure that we have everything. He's doing a little checklist here. And they both go here together. Now I want you to see that there are some similarities here between Isaac and Jesus. Isaac is a type. He's a symbolic type of Jesus who would to come, who is to come. And, and I want you to just see, there was a miraculous birth for years and years. Abraham and Sarah, they waited on the promise of God. In fact, the birth was something that was foretold many, many years ahead of time. It was something that required waiting, both for Isaac and both for Jesus. Um, we have, for, for Isaac, we have a sacrifice to take away sins. For Jesus, he was ultimately going to be the sacrifice to take away sins. For Isaac, he's Abraham's only son. For Jesus, he is the son of God, God's only son. For Isaac, he's riding a donkey to the mountain to be sacrificed. Jesus, we know in Matthew chapter 21, that he gets on a donkey and he comes down from Mount of Olives and he's coming knowing that he is about to give his life. We have Isaac who takes the wood that is laid on his back. And later on in the Jesus narrative, we see that Jesus would carry the cross made of wood and take that to his sacrifice. There was a sacrificed ram that we're about to get to caught in the thorns. And Jesus is laid upon his head. There is a crown of thorns. It's also interesting that Isaac, if he is somewhere in his teens at this point, willingly, without a fight, lays himself down. And Jesus says, nobody takes my life from me, but I lay my life down and give it to many. All throughout the scripture narrative, we see that Isaac is this beautiful and perfect type of Christ. And so what do we have? Abraham, he says, God will provide the lamb. Look at this. This is in verse 9. And it says, When they came to the place of which God had told them, Abraham built the altar there, and he laid the wood in order and bound his son. That's bound, the binding of Isaac. This is the akeda. This is the binding. And this is a moment of faith. I, I wonder what Abraham's thinking like, all right, God, I thought you were going to kind of deliver. I thought maybe we'd get up to Moriah here, and this I, we would see the, the, the sacrifice. What is it? And now... I think Isaac is starting to figure it out. This is about the moment where as, as his father is tying him up, he is bound. And it says that he, he bound him 
his son, and he laid him on top of the altar, on top of the wood. And then Abraham reached out his hand. He took the knife to slaughter his son. But the angel of the Lord. Now you'll see in the Old Testament narrative, many times they'll say the angel of the Lord or an angel of the Lord. The angel of the Lord, it's believed that this is a theophany, that this is Jesus himself showing up. And he says, Abraham, Abraham. And what does Abraham say? Hold on, I'm doing something, Lord. I'll get with you in a sec. What does he say? No, we see this. He says it once again, Hineni. Here I am, just in time. He said, do not lay your hand on the boy. Don't do anything to him, for now I know that you fear God, seeing you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. Do you understand this moment? In this moment, this is a picture of Jesus, who in the garden of Gethsemane is going to his father saying, Lord, if this cup can pass from me, but not my will, your will be done. And so he's waiting on the answer from God. And for Jesus in the garden, the answer was, this is the only way. And so Jesus was that perfect lamb who was slain. He says, this is not going to, this is not going to affect you. You're going to stop this, Isaac, Abraham. You're not going to slaughter your son. He said, I know now that you fear God, seeing you've not withheld your son, your only son for me. And it says, Abraham lifted up his eyes again, and he looked, and behold, there was a ram caught in the thicket by his horns. Now, I don't know if you look at this, but sometimes I get a little bit technical. Um, earlier on, Abraham says that God will provide a lamb for the offering, but when we get to this point, is it a lamb that is stuck in the thicket? No, it says it's a ram. Now, I'm not much of a farmer. Again, I'm an Orange County, California city boy originally, but here's what I've learned is that young sheep are lambs. We have adult female sheep are called ewes. We have castrated male sheep are called weathers, and not castrated Male sheep are called rams. So God provides a ram for the offering, and this was a perfect and spotless ram. Now, I want you to understand, one of the things that I'm, I'm working on right now is a book called Worthy is the Lamb. And I want you to understand that as Jesus gets on that donkey and he's coming into Jerusalem, that this is a test. Oftentimes in that Passion Week story, we hear a lot of churches that they will say that it's Friday, but Sunday's coming. And then some of the churches, they'll say it's Sunday, but Friday's coming. But what I love is the rest of the week. Jesus gets on this donkey and he enters into Jerusalem and it was actually on Lamb Selection Day. Do you know what Lamb Selection Day is? Go all the way back to the Exodus narrative. In Exodus chapter 12, God says to Moses, I want you to go to the Israelites living in Egypt, and this is at the end of the 10 plagues, and he says, on the 10th day of the month of Nisan, the Hebrew month of Nisan, I want you to take a one-year-old lamb, perfect, without spot, without blemish. Take it into your home on the 10th of Nisan, and I want you to watch it until the 14th. 
the 10th, 11th, 12th, 13th, 14th, five days, you're going to scrutinize it. You're going to test it. You're going to make sure that that lamb is without spot and blemish. And when it is and when you found it to be perfect, on the 14th, I want you to slaughter it. I want you to take its blood, put it on the doorposts of your house and your lintels, and then you will see salvation. Isn't it amazing? And wouldn't it be amazing if Jesus, who John says, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world, wouldn't it be amazing if Jesus actually rode into Jerusalem as the Lamb of God to be selected on the 10th of Nisan? Guess what? He did. And what happens on Monday? And what happens on Tuesday? What happens the rest of the week? It's crazy if you read the, test, the, the New Testament narrative in Matthew 21, 22, 23, what we see is that Jesus is tried and scrutinized and tested. He has these confrontations with Herodians and the Sadducees and the Pharisees and the scribes. And you know what they say? After all of this, it says, they dared not ask another question. Even up to Pilate, Pilate says, I see no wrong in this man. And therefore, on the 14th of Nisan, Jesus was that perfect lamb who was sacrificed, his blood poured out so that you and I might be saved. Now, I know we're talking about his birth and I'm talking about his death. Hang on, we're gonna get there. But I want you to see that this story is intimately connected. And really, here's where it's connected. Uh, the next point is, is this idea of the tree. Now, you've read this, this part. Uh, it, it's been in here in the narrative a few times, but it's the tree of life. The first time that the tree of life shows up in the biblical narrative is in Genesis chapter two, where God creates all of these things that are springing forth. There's bushes and plants, but then in the middle of the garden, there was a tree, but not only a tree, it was a tree of life. In the Hebrew, we call it etz chayim. Etz meaning tree, chayim. Have you ever watched Fiddler on the Roof? To life, to life, lechayim, life. It's the tree of life. And so in the middle of this garden, there's this tree of life. What's amazing is that this tree of life shows up all throughout the scripture narrative. Look in verse 13, Genesis 22, 13, it says, Abraham lifted up his eyes and behold, behind him, there was a ram caught in a thicket, in a wood, in a tree, a bush. So you can have trees be an etz, you can have plants be an etz, these are all, it's all the wood. And this is important because this, this ram was caught in the wood by his horns. And Abraham, he went and he took the ram and he offered it up as a burnt offering instead of, in place of his son. So Abraham called the name of that place, the Lord will provide. As it is said to this day on the mount of the Lord, it shall be provided. This tree is a symbol that continues to bring salvation. Now look, in Genesis chapter two, we see that this tree in the garden is a tree of life. But what's also amazing is if you follow the word study of this word etz, you'll see that the tree always saves. How do I know this? Chapter six of Genesis, what does God do? God tells Noah, I want you to build an ark made out of etz. And upon the waters of death, this etz will bring you life. Fast forward, go to the Moses narrative. And while the Pharaoh is drowning babies in the Nile, Moses' mother takes some bulrushes. She takes an etz and she forms 
a mini ark out of it. In fact, those two passages are connected because both Noah and Moses' mother both cover the ets with tar and pitch and butamen. So Moses placed in this ets upon the waters of the Nile, the waters of death, Moses is saved. You'll see that all throughout the Bible narrative, this ets always saves. In fact, Moses would lead the Israelites out of Egypt. They get through the Red Sea and on the other side in Exodus chapter 15, they come to this place called Mara. Mara means bitter. They were thirsty. They wanted water, but they went to this place, this place called bitter, and they tasted the water that was bitter. It was the water of death once again. And what does Moses say? Take that, that log over there, take that etz over there, throw it into the water, and that bitter water would be made sweet. The water of death would once again bring life. And we see that this tree of life goes all the way up until Jesus, who would carry an etz on his back through the streets of Jerusalem, where he would ultimately be hung on what Galatians 3 says, that cursed ets, that cursed tree. What was a curse and what Jesus took on became a tree of life for you and me. Even today, the Jewish people, when we read the Torah, the first five books of the Bible, we roll out the scroll of Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. But what's really amazing is after after we read from the Torah scroll on a Saturday morning, they roll it back up. I don't know if you've ever seen a picture of a Torah scroll, but do you know how you roll it back up? You use these wood levers, wood handles. And you know what they call those? Etz. And they roll up the Torah, the very word of God. They roll it up and then the rabbi, he takes it and he holds it up in front of the congregation and they sing this song called it is a tree of life for all those who grasp and those who draw near will be blessed. It's taken from the Proverbs. The word of God is a tree of life. We are called to draw near to that tree of life, but the tree saves. This tree of life, it saves. So the cross is this life-giving tree. Here's where the story ends. In Genesis chapter 22, it says, and the angel of the Lord, in verse 15, the angel of the Lord called to Abraham a second time from heaven and said, by myself, I have sworn, declares the Lord, because you have done this and you have not withheld your son, your only son, I will surely bless you. And I will surely Multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven and as the sand that is on the seashore. And your offspring shall possess the gate of his enemies. And in your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed because you had faith, because you have obeyed my voice. So Abraham returned to his young men and they rose and went to Beersheba, and Abraham lived in Beersheba. What we see in this passage 
is this hope, this covenant that God made way back there in Genesis 12, that he reaffirmed again in Genesis 15, that he reaffirmed again in Genesis 17, that he reaffirmed again in Genesis 21. He reaffirms because of the faithfulness of Abraham. He says, because of this, Abraham, Sarah, you barren people who couldn't have kids, you had to wait till you were 100 to have kids. Through you, I am going to fulfill this covenant. And God restates the covenant to Isaac. And then God, once again, restates that covenant to Jacob. And so there is hope that God has not forgotten his covenant. In fact, God is very faithful and repeats and reminds his people of his covenant throughout the rest of the narrative. So let me show you something that's interesting because all throughout the history of the Jewish people, it feels like, it seems like this covenant has been threatened. I think in the war room for Satan, who's also chosen the Jewish people as God's chosen people, if he could just eliminate the Jewish people, then God's a liar. If he could just wipe them off the face of the earth, then God can't really do his thing. And so throughout Jewish history, what we see is the mission of the enemy. And the mission of the enemy for the Jewish people is either assimilation or annihilation. Look throughout the history of Israel, whether it is Pharaoh in Egypt, whether it is Persia, whether it is Nebuchadnezzar and the Babylonians. In fact, that moment in 586 BC when the temple is destroyed and the Jewish people were taken out of their land really did not have sovereignty until 1948, 2,600 years later. But that's not where the enemy stopped. And isn't it amazing that there's no through line of this oldest hatred on earth except that there's an enemy that's trying to destroy the people of God. And I wanna fast forward to this story that takes place in the year 167 BC. It's what many would call the intertestamental period. It's that time between Malachi in the Old Testament and Matthew. It's also known, as many people would say, as the 400 years of silence. It's amazing because we have this picture of uh, even, even the Israelites waiting in Egypt for 400 years. They're waiting for Moses to come as a deliverer to take them out, to say, this place is not where you belong. You are made for another city, for another land. Well, for 400 years, from Malachi to Matthew, the world is waiting for the Messiah to come. And there's still a threat. Even though we call it this period of silence, God is still on the move. The year is 167 BC. Um, after Alexander the Great, his, his army is divided up. But one of the people that, that takes over uh, part of this area is a Seleucid king named Antiochus IV. And what he's trying to do throughout the world is to Hellenize the world, make everything Greek, which meant for the Jewish people that we are going to remove the Torahs, you can no longer, you can no longer uh, communicate, teach the Torah. Uh, you can no longer circumcise your boys on the eighth day. Um, you can no longer be Jewish. He wanted to Hellenize. And so what Antiochus does is he goes into Israel and he goes to this little town in Israel that still exists today called Modin. And in Modin, he goes up to the high priest, his name is Mattathias, and he says, you will now worship 
our kings. You will now worship our gods. And I want you to make a sacrifice on this altar right here. And Mattathias says, not going to happen. Somebody from Modin says, I'll do it. And walks up and Mattathias says, no, you won't. And he kills him. And not only that, but Matthias then goes after the captain that was sent. And all of this is part of a story. It's a historical story found in 1 Maccabees through 5 Maccabees, part of the apocryphal writings. But historically, this is written at the same time as the New Testament. What takes place from 167 to 164 is this pushback where this tiny little tribe that's part of the Hasmonean dynasty, and you may know them as the Maccabees. Maccabee means hammer. Mattathias and his five sons, they attacked guerrilla warfare, went against this massive Seleucid army that they should have never won. And once again, God was faithful to keep his covenant. Where there was a wild and crazy king, he actually called himself Antiochus Epiphanes, like a god. God manifests is what Epiphanes means. Everybody else called him Antiochus Epimenes, like a madman. But what he was trying to do was eradicate and destroy and annihilate the Jewish people. But over a course of three years, in 164, God was once again faithful to his people. Why is this important? Because just a few days ago, we finished celebrating Hanukkah. Hanukkah is the festival of lights. And what I love to say is that if there was no Hanukkah, if Antiochus was successful in wiping out the covenant people of God, then Jesus would not have been able to come 160 years later. If there were no Hanukkah, there would be no Christmas. So Jesus comes, and he comes so that we might have life. He came, and he climbed a mountain, and he bared the cross. In fact, Moriah, the very place where Abraham went to sacrifice Isaac, is Jerusalem today. If you've ever been to Jerusalem or what we mostly know as Jerusalem today is the Dome of the Rock. Have you seen that? The big shiny gold dome there was, was really created in the seventh century AD. When it's called the Dome of the Rock, if you go in there, I've been in there once, the rock that's inside there is the rock believed that Abraham sacrificed Isaac. It's in Muslim hands right now, but that is the same place where the temple of God was. It's also the same vicinity where Jesus came and he came to give his life. In that place that Abraham called the Lord will provide, God provided his lamb at that place. I want you to know that ever since that moment 2,000 years ago, everything was pushing towards the incarnation and Jesus coming. Everything from right now or from that point to right now and where we stand today, it's all pointing toward the king returning. And I could go over the last 2,000 years of Jewish history and you can see that the Jewish people from the Crusades to the pogroms in Russia to the Inquisition to the Holocaust and even to October 7th. The enemy has not given up on his tactic to destroy the people of God. But we know that God's going to be faithful in the end. We know that God will not allow his people to be destroyed. And that's what we have 
at play in what is going through today. This is the greatest mission in history. This is the greatest story ever told. And I believe that you and I, I always wondered what would it have been like to be alive during Bible times? What would it have been like to be alive 2,000 years ago and to walk along the Sea of Galilee and to see Jesus perform his miracles? What would it like, be like to be part of biblical history? And I think that we're part of it right now. I think that what is unfolding and what we see happening in the world is the world preparing for the return of the king. In this season, we not only celebrate that Jesus came, but what Jesus talked about more than anything else was not his birthday, but his return. And the call for us is what do we do until then? Uh, 20 years ago, my mom passed away from breast cancer and uh, our, our family felt this like, what, what do we do with this? We had sadness, we, we hated cancer, we wanted to do something about it. And so we decided as a family that we were going to sign up for a three day, 60 mile trek um, with Susan G. Komen to be able to raise funds for cancer research. Now, I know that Jeff probably ran 60 miles this morning as a little warm up just before church, but for me 20 years ago, that was not that easy. Um, actually, probably not be that easy today. But here's what, what that process was like for me as, as I was going through three days. Day number one, you go 20 miles. At the end of 20 miles, you don't get to stay in the Four Seasons Hotel. You get to stand in line. You get your tent. Then you have to put your tent together, and then you have to sleep on the ground. Now, I'm talking to a bunch of military folks, and you're saying, suck it up. I understand. But I had to do that day one, and I had to do that day two, and then again on day three. And I'll tell you that the entire story, I was not necessarily thinking about my mom. I was not thinking about breast cancer research. I was thinking about the pain and struggle and suffering that I was in. And what really had happened for those first 59 miles was I had lost the plot. I had forgotten the reason. I had forgotten the mission and the story of why I was actually there participating in this to begin with. And it wasn't until that last mile. Something beautiful happened on that last mile because at that last mile, people start to line the streets. Breast cancer survivors saying, five years clear, five years survivor. People holding up pictures of those who had battled cancer and lost to cancer. And they're, they're doing this in memory. And they're starting to cheer you on because they know that the finish line is coming. And it was not until then that I realized and remembered the story I found myself that I was a part of. Um, I, I think that we are in the last mile. I think that the king is coming back. Uh, but this church, I know this church, that, that your leaders and the mission of this church is that we will not forget why God put us here to push back darkness, to be people of light. But it is in this time that we are called to live in the right story and not forget the plot. And so that's my call for you. As we look at this story of God preserving his people and God saying, I'm going to make a way, I'm going to provide a sacrifice and I want you to live your life, I want you to live it by faith. And the call for us really is this looking forward. And this is what I love about this passage. Here's the epilogue to the story that's really in the end here of Genesis chapter 22. What it says is, do you remember earlier in the story, it says that 
Abraham, he looks at his servants and he says, I and the boy are going to worship and we will return. But at the end of the story in verse 19, it says this. Did you catch this? It says, so Abraham returned with his young men and they arose. Where's Isaac? Where's Isaac? We don't see Isaac. What we get is like some weird, like from verses 20 to 24, we get like another genealogy of what's going on. That, those next four verses is a literary device. It's setting up a story that's to come. And actually what's to come is Rebecca. We get to find out the lineage of Rebecca, who Isaac will then marry. But you know what's interesting? We don't see Isaac come down. Now we know Isaac came down. We know that Isaac wasn't laid up there and he eventually died up there on the mountain. We know that he came back. We just don't know when or how. But what we see in Genesis is he does not, he's not there after he's been raised from the dead, essentially, that he has life again. We don't see him in chapter 22 for the rest of the time. We also don't see him in chapter 23 that you will get into. Sarah dies. His mom dies, and we don't see anything about Isaac. Do you know where we see Isaac the very next time? It's when he comes back with his bride, Rebecca. Jesus is coming back, but he's coming for his bride. This is the season that we find ourselves in. So what do we do with this? Three things. Number one, the binding of your faith, to live by faith, to believe. Um, living a life of faith is not easy. I think living a life of faith, to be able to go when God calls you and say, Lord, Hineni, here I am. It requires risk and there are no guarantees of the outcome. When we put our faith and our trust in Jesus, there are no guarantees as to what's gonna happen next, but we need to trust in the goodness and in the plan of God. When we believe, we also need to then become. What is God asking us to become? It's to become a person, not just of faith, but what it says in the New Testament, this word faith is pistas. It means faithfulness. What does it look to live a life of faithfulness? God is always looking, and the whole narrative of the Bible, God is looking for partners. If it's not you, then I will raise up somebody else from somewhere else. God's looking for partners. Partners who are willing to obey him in what the rest of the world would say, that's absolutely ridiculous. It does not make sense. God doesn't work in a world that makes sense. God is asking for us to believe with incredible faith. And the last piece is this idea of being sent. Would you travel three days in radical obedience to God? And where is God asking you to go? What is God asking you to do? What would you do for God? And what is God calling you to do in this season of your life? All in all, God's asking us to live as people of faith to have the faith of Abraham and to have the faith of Isaac. You know that, that passage that I read in Hebrews 11 that talked about the faith of Abraham? Just before that, and this entire hall of faith in, in Hebrews 11, this is my prayer for you. That you would be kept on a list that, that God keeps, that he would see you as people of faith but this is the preamble to those stories that we get to read 
says, these all died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. We might be living here in this place, but God has made us for another, right? That we are supposed to keep the boat in the water, but have no water in the boat, right? For people who speak, thus make it clear that they are seeking a homeland. If they had been thinking of that land from which they had gone out, they would have had opportunity to return. But as it is, they desire a better country. That is a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared for them a city. Living by faith in this season is to acknowledge that the king has come and the king is coming again. And do we have faith to believe that, to become all that he's asking us and to be sent to say Hineni wherever he leads? Let me pray. We hope you enjoyed this message. Don't forget to subscribe to our podcast and to stay in touch by joining our email list through the link in the show notes. Have a great week.